0: 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, it says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any one speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. One of the most frequently questions that I get asked is, when do you think Jesus will return? Do you think we're coming right up to the end of the end times? Do we anticipate that as the curtains begin to fall, the curtain on act 1 and the curtain on act 2 and the curtain on act 3, when will the final curtain drop? When will the trumpet blow? When will Jesus Christ return in glory? Are we there yet? And again, it reminds me of taking my kids cross-country when we first moved to Albuquerque and then to here, and we'd drive all the way back to California. Did Did you ever take long trips, and the kids are in the back going, Are we there yet? Are we there? And of course, the right answer is, of course you're there. We used to be here, now we're there. Every moment you're moving closer and closer to the final destination. Are we there yet? Have we come right to the end of the end times? Few people ask me, how should I live right now based on the reality that Jesus Christ could come back at any moment? Peter doesn't wait to be asked. Because that's the question that he really wants to answer in this passage. Peter doesn't hold a prophecy conference. He doesn't write a treatise on theodicy. Now, by the way, theodicy is the study of suffering. Although 1 Peter is, in fact, a treatise on suffering. Peter is not really (laughs) educated. Peter is not really sophisticated. But Peter has an advanced degree in real-world living, what I call a BS.DLM. Do you know what a BS DLM? It's the backside of the desert like Moses. He got his advanced training in the very real world of living every day for Jesus. And in this passage, he says that we should live serious and sober in verse 7. We should live watching and praying at the end of verse 7. We should live with increasing and expanding love in verse 8. We should live with hearts filled with a generous sense of hospitality in verse 9. We should live fully exercising our God-given gifts towards one another. Now, the subject of prophecy is exciting. I love prophecy. One-third of the Bible is about prophecy. There's a reason why we have some of the best authors and speakers who come into our church and congregation. Uh, one One of the best writers currently is a guy named Joel Rosenberg. He's been a frequent guest. I love prophecy. It's exciting. The subject of suffering Less exciting. But the subject of suffering is on the author's mind. He's talking about the coming of Jesus. But he's doing it with that. With the issue of of submission and suffering in mind. By the way, remember chapters 4 and chapters 5 are all about God's grace and suffering. And as we've already looked at chapter 4, remember suffering purifies the saint in verses 1 through 6. Now Peter suggests that suffering unifies the church in verses 7 through 11. And later we're going to see in the chapter that suffering glorifies the Lord in verses 12 through 9. So how does suffering unify the church? Well, again, Peter reminds the church that even in the middle of trial, even in the midst of suffering, we have obligations and responsibilities, duties, if you will, but I think it's more important to refer to them as privileges. We have privileges. The privileges that sometimes might be characterized as obligations and responsibilities include prayer for one another and fervent love for one another. Christians are exhorted to open their hearts, but they're also encouraged to open (laughs) their homes to one another. To refrain from accusing one another. Christians are to understand that a believer's love covers a multitude of sins, but only Jesus can cleanse sin. Our love for one another is sufficient to motivate us to refrain from living a lifestyle of accusation against one another. We're called to serve the Lord in spite of persecution, exercising the God-given gifts that have been imparted by the Holy Spirit. And so in this chapter, Peter hints, at the purpose of suffering in verses one through 11. In verse 15, if you just wanna look ahead very briefly, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. In verses 17 through 18, it talks about the purpose of suffering. Clearly, this includes our purification, but also to chasten and discipline the carnal believer. Peter reminds us that suffering is a privilege and then to remain patient in suffering in verse 19 when you come to the end of the chapter. When we are in trial, we continue to do good. We commit ourselves and our circumstances to the Lord. That's what we've been told. But now he wants to talk about living your life knowing that the end is near. Look what it says in verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in all your prayers. Now what does Peter mean when he writes. The end of all things are at hand. Because clearly he wrote this perhaps in what you and I would call um, the 60s. Not the 1960s. 60 AD. And so 1,000. 900 and some 40 years have gone by, it doesn't seem like the end of all things is at hand. But remember, Peter is writing with the understanding that there are chapters in the human history and the final chapter is coming to a close. As a matter of fact, the ancient Hebrews would have been very familiar with the prophet Daniel. And remember, the prophet Daniel wrote in In Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, at that time, Michael shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since before there was a nation, even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness shall shine like the stars forever and ever. When Daniel wrote those words, it was some 400 years earlier. Time was marching forward. As a matter of fact, in chapter 4, verse 11, where it says... Um, or actually, in verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. I want to draw your attention to the word end. Because it's the word telos. Now, we get the word telescope from that. Remember what a telescope sees. It's the end of the vision, if you will. It doesn't mean secession necessarily. It doesn't mean termination. It doesn't necessarily mean that a clock is ticking and it's coming to a chronological conclusion. Often in the Greek language, it meant termination or fulfillment or realization or culmination. In this context, I think what Peter is making reference to is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think that Peter means the end of the persecution is at hand, or the end of the temple is at hand, even though it's only a few Years away, the political circumstances of Jerusalem is going to be eliminated. The temple is going to be destroyed. Um, The old covenant, if you will, and the sacrificial system is going to come to an abrupt end. I don't think he's talking about the sacking of Jerusalem or even the end of his own life. So because I don't think he's talking about a cultural end or a social end or even a personal end, I think that he's talking about the reality that Jesus Christ is coming back. And the verb translated is at hand means fast approaching in the perfect tense. It's a consummated process with a resulting nearness In other words, I think what Peter is saying is it's the next thing on the prophetic calendar. It's imminent. The word imminent means something that could happen at any moment. As a matter of fact, the coming of Jesus Christ is characterized that way throughout the New Testament in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 29. Romans chapter 13, verse 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. Over and over and over again, the Christian is called to live their lives under the auspices of the reality That Jesus could come back at any moment. Peter is speaking of an attitude and a lifestyle of anticipation and expectation as a matter of love and faithfulness to Jesus. Now I want you to be very, very aware of what I'm talking about right now. Do we have theological reasons to believe that Jesus could come back at any moment? Yes. Are there those who dispute that? Yes. But I'm going to suggest to you that the Bible gives way more than just a theological reason to expect Jesus' certain return. That it's a matter of personal love. It's a matter of personal faithfulness. It's something that takes place inside of your heart, within your mind, as you anticipate, just like a wife who is separated from her husband because he's overseas or he's fighting in Iran or Iraq. In other words, when loved ones are separated from each other, you live in anticipation of their return. That's what I think that he's talking about. By the way... Did Peter believe that? Did Peter believe that? In the the same letter, Peter writes at the very opening in chapter 1, verse 5, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 7, he talks about for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, verse 5, at the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse 7. Over and over and over and over again, the New Testament stresses the importance of believers anticipating Jesus' return. Mark 1335 through 37, Luke chapter 12, verse 40, Luke chapter 21, verse 36, First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1:7, 1 Timothy 6:4, Titus 2:13, James chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Over and over and over again, when Paul wrote to um, either churches or individuals, he called special attention to To the suffering that we can anticipate as we approach the countdown to the final curtain to the end. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says, but the spirit explicitly states that in the latter time, some will fall away. Actually, it's 1 Timothy chapter 6, I think. I'm going to turn there because I want to make sure that I'm telling you the right thing. But it is... I'm sure that it's in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, I didn't cite it, but it, I know that it's in there, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected If it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the work of God and prayer, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. In the days of suffering, you become intensely focused on the end. So what is Peter doing? He's briefing the troops before he deploys them into battle. Now remember, remember, remember our audience. These are the suffering saints who see little or no relief on the horizon. Peter interjects a comment that that always makes the true believer's spirit sore. I know you're hurt. I know things are hard. I know things are painful. I know things are difficult. But Jesus is coming back soon. When we were kids, we used to sing a song. The master went away from us 2,000 years ago. He left us with his promise to return. How our hearts do long for him. We miss the master so. We must keep the faith and let the fire burn. I love that. So what are we to do? Peter writes, use good judgment. Stay calm in the spirit of prayer. So again, in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, where it says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. The word that's translated serious or sober is an interesting word. It's the Greek word "sophroneo." The word appears six times in the Greek New Testament. Twice it's translated, "I need you to be in your right mind." <laughs> Twice it's translated, "sober." Here, I think the word means clear-minded, self. Restrained, thoughtful, calm. Let me be clear here clear minded is the opposite of crazy. The coming of Jesus doesn't mean that we wear aluminum foil hats or that we buy. Land in Montana or Idaho. Now, don't get me wrong. If you buy land in Montana or Idaho because because it's a beautiful place and they have great fishing and great sports, that's great. But if you go there in anticipation to wait out the end of the world, that's crazy. Is it okay to have a generator in your basement? Yeah. Is it okay to have food on hand? Uh, Yeah. But remember, food has a lifespan. If you've had it down there for two years, throw it away. If you've had it there for less than a year, give it away. The coming of Jesus doesn't mean that you act like a crazy person or that you think crazy thoughts. It doesn't mean quit your job. It doesn't mean quit school. It doesn't mean that you have to know every single detail of the end times in order to feel secure. We are to live serious and sober. That means not given to excess, not shaken by trouble or problems or circumstances, whether the problem or circumstances come from our family or come from our job or come from the culture or come from the government or come from the world, we can clearly enjoy our family and our job and our culture, but we're to keep a sensible perspective on all things and give everything its proper place in our lives. That's what he's saying. Be thoughtful, be serious, but look what else it says. Be watchful in your prayers. One of the ways to maintain sobriety and balance is what the Bible calls watchful prayer. We keep one eye in heaven and we keep one eye on the earth. We stay sober, vigilant, alert, awake. John Phillips puts it this way. Watching sights the enemy. Praying fights the enemy. I like that. We pray and we watch. Prayer connects us to the mind of God. Prayer connects us to the will of God. Prayer brings into sharp focus awareness, and discernment. Prayer is what strengthened the resolve of Jesus in his arrest and torture and eventual execution. And it was this same lack of prayer that caused Peter to stumble and to fall. You'll remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember Jesus extended to Peter this invitation. He said, come and watch with me and pray with me. With me and what did Peter do? He fell asleep. Peter's not saying, Oh, by the way, when I had the opportunity to watch and pray, I did. No, what he is saying is, I, I'm hoping you'll learn from my mistake. Because guess what? The Rather than the lack of prayer causing you to stumble and fall, engage in watchful prayer. As you engage in watchful prayer, it carries the idea of temperance and abstinence from those intoxicating influences that numb a vigilant spirit. The verb form suggests a kind of stirring up that needs to take place when indifference Causes a person to fall asleep at the wheel. (coughs) I think that that's what he's saying. Peter warns the reader to adopt the discipline of prayer. Now, I want you to think this through. This isn't the discipline of prayer in order for you to be a religious person. Because that's what religious people do. Religious people pray. I, I think it's more than that. It's to be strong rather than weak. It's to be prepared rather than unprepared. That's what he's talking about. That's the emphasis and that's the point. Well, I'm a Christian, I'm expected to pray. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts which we're about to receive. Father, Son, Holy Ghost, whoever eats the fastest gets the most. (laughs) I don't think it's talking about that kind of prayer. I don't don't think it's talking about a religious rote. I don't think it's talking about some sort of religious articulation in the expectation that God will be happy that you're mumbling things to him. He's talking about a vigilance. He's talking about a reality. He's talking about a strength and a preparation that connects you to the mind of God and the heart of God and the will of God in order to survive suffering. That's what he's talking about. And then in verse 8, we should live with increasing and expanding love. Look what it says in verse 8. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, do the math here. Jesus is coming. Stay calm. Remain focused. And now, above all things, have fervent love for one another. In other words, look, above everything else, above all of the other admonitions and advice that I'm giving you, please take to heart this. That's what Peter is saying. Not only are you to stay calm, not only are you to remain focused, but above all things, have fervent love for one another. And by the way, the word fervent is ek- It means to stretch or to strain. It was a word that the ancients would use to describe the athlete who strains to win the match or cross the finish line. It was a word to describe that when the athlete came to the end of the race and the final culmination is taking place, it's taking all of that focused energy, every molecule in your body in order to stretch as far as you can possibly stretch in order to across the finish line in order to win. The point that Peter is making is to have a flexible love, one that is able to stretch. Now think carefully the point that he's making. It means it stretches to the limits to minister to one another. In other words, it's the kind of love that expands and stretches. By the way, the other place in the New Testament where this word appears is Peter's own imprisonment in Acts. Remember when when Peter is picked up By Herod. He's going to be executed the following morning. We've made several references to it throughout our study. But the Bible says that prayer was made for him. And it's translated. And they began to pray for him. And it's translated without ceasing. Same word. In other words, they began to pray for him. Stretching. Stretching. Expanding. Expanding, And Peter draws special attention to this kind of love that stretches and covers a multitude of sins. Here's the idea. That this is a, a kind of love that is able to stretch so far that it overlooks abuse and pain and discomfort. And impropriety. It's a love that goes as far as necessary to forgive. The writer of Proverbs wrote in chapter 10, verse 12, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. If you're a mother, you know about this love. This is the kind of love that when you look at your child, you go... I'm going to let it go. And then you look again and you go, I'm going to let it go. And you look again and you say, I'm going to let it go. Does hatred remain in the body of Christ? I think the sad truth is that often people see our failings and they see our accusations and they see our divisions. It was Mahatma Gandhi who said, I like your Christ, but I don't really particularly care for Christians. (laughs) He said, They are so unlike your Christ. And what is Jesus like? Jesus is loving, Jesus is forgiving. Someone once wrote, we're most like beasts when we kill and we're most like men when we judge, but we're most like God when we forgive. And so what are the benefits of this kind of fervent, expanding stretching love. Paul wrote that love must be sincere in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. To owe no man anything but to love one another, Romans thirteen eight. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith, he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. This is the kind of love we exercise in the midst of injury and abuse and persecution and opposition and ridicule And evil speaking and mocking. This is the kind of stretchy love. There's a silly, stupid movie called Nacho Libre. I don't know if you ever saw this stupid movie, but it's about this priest who uh, joins a a wrestling team in order to provide for the orphanage. And he puts on that silly little hat and he 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 puts on these stretchy pants. And one of the kids from the orphanage walks in on him and he's wearing these stretchy pants. And the kid looks shocked and he goes, sometimes a man needs to wear stretchy pants make him feel good. Yeah, it, it's hilarious. <laughs> and sometimes that kind of stretchy love looks ridiculous. It looks absurd. But it stretches in order to accommodate. That's the point. Life needs love. Life needs love to confront sin and to apply grace and mercy and forgiveness. Love is like a strong soap that cleanses dirt and grime that builds up in life's interactions and your wife and your child and your friend doesn't really care that Russia is marketing nuclear technology and military equipment to several Middle Eastern countries. They don't really think about or are fascinated by Iran's aggressive upgrading of long-range missiles. they don't get up in the morning agonizing over anti Israeli sentiment, even though it's a, at a fever pitch among Muslim nations. They wonder about your Christian faith and is it strong enough to keep you from yelling at them? Why isn't your Christian love big enough to overlook a transgression or an offense? Your boss, your co-worker, your neighbor may find it interesting or fascinating that you're well-versed in Bible prophecy, that you can articulate the premillennial position and the postmillennial position, that you have advanced understanding of eschatology, you know about the threat from the north, you understand the rise of radical Islam, how our country's addiction to foreign oil, you can outline Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, you can articulate 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 America's role in a future global conflict, the final jihad, even messianic prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ. But you wonder, you wonder why your boss looks at you funny because you show up to work late and because your life is marked by a growing resentment and bitterness and anxiety because you can't bring yourself to forgive someone for a real or imaginary offense. Prophecy is easy to learn. It's even fun to learn. Loving is hard. Forgiving is difficult. In order to love and in order to forgive, you have to participate in true friendship. And real relationship with Christ. It requires the presence of the Holy Spirit. It requires a willingness to allow Jesus to be the Lord of your life. And so Peter writes in verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Peter includes the command. Be hospitable. It's, it's an interesting word in the original language. It's philo, xenos. Philo means affection. Xenos means stranger. It came to mean hospitable, but in its root meaning, it meant to have an affection for and a willingness to treat with affection complete strangers. You know, it's easy to, to, to be nice to people that you know. And sometimes it's really difficult to be nice to people that you don't know. But remember, they're living in a world where hospitaliano was necessary for life. Remember, they fled from their lives from Rome in order to escape Nero. They're fleeing for their lives in those Roman provinces where Christians are being gathered, they're being tried, they're being imprisoned, they're being tortured, they're being executed. And when you are being tried and tortured and executed, guess what? Sometimes you live on the run. You are literally at the mercy of other people's graciousness because you didn't have a chance to take everything that you had. And so you literally are at the mercy of the graciousness of somebody else. The implication is that this hospitality isn't simply extended to the rich or the famous or the fun, but the hospitality extends to the unfriendly and the unwelcome and those people who aren't particularly fun to be with. And and Peter adds, without grumbling, you might be thinking, oh, why did Peter do that? Christians never complain. See, you're laughing because you're going, oh, oh, yeah, right. By the way, are Christians just as likely to complain as the unbeliever? What do we complain about? We complain when our time is taxed. We complain about expenses. We complain about inconveniences. Because hospitality requires a certain amount of emotional reserve, doesn't it? The vultures come in and they empty the cupboard. They swoop through the refrigerator like a plague of locusts. They talk about their lost job. They talk about their lost love. They talk about their lost opportunity. They talk about this. They talk about that. They talk about this. They talk about that. But the Bible makes it clear that emotions can be recharged. And cupboards can be refilled. And refrigerators can be restocked. Your time and your resources, who do they belong to? That's Jesus' cupboard. That's Jesus' refrigerator. Well, why doesn't Jesus put something in my refrigerator? (laughs) Jesus will put exactly in that refrigerator exactly what you need. And I want you to be reminded of something. Your time and your resources, because they belong to the Lord... You belong to the Lord. Your friendship belongs to the Lord. It can be expressed and enjoyed. And here's the point. When your priorities are right, when fervent love, stretchy love has opened the door, it will open the door in order to help the needy. Guess what? You can't have verse 9 without verse 8, can you? Because a kind of a stretchy love will open up a kind of a disconnected heart. When our priorities are right, when love is there, hospitality isn't all that difficult. But remember that hospitality is a two-way street. Love stretches both ways. We're not to abuse or take advantage of believers' generosity. Again, some people have decided to tune out and drop out in an unbalanced and unbiblical response to prophetic teaching. They quit their job. They start living off of the assets of other, and they take advantage of grace and graciousness. So one of the ways is, again, to adopt a sense of balance and propriety. And then it says, we should live fully exercising our God-given gift. Look at verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Here, I think that Peter is speaking of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And these are spiritual gifts. A special enabling given by God for the purpose of honoring God. And building the body of Christ. These are gifts that are given, I believe... Until Jesus returns. Remember in verse 7? But the end of all things is at hand. This special gifting is going to be necessary, I think, until all things come to a final fruition and consummation. And remember the emphasis that Peter writes, these gifts are given for the purpose of ministering to one another, of loving one another, of providing for one another, serving one another. Peter has mentioned hospitality as a general duty or obligation, but some have a supernatural God-given charisma. That means a supernatural ability to love people and I think a supernatural ability to exercise hospitality. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that each Christian without exception is given a supernatural provision by the Holy Spirit in order to advance the kingdom and build the body and support one another. For you, it might be visiting, it might be mercy, it might be giving, it might be prophecy, it might be miracles, it might be tongues, it might be the interpretation of a tongue, it might be knowledge, it might be wisdom, it might be discerning of spirits, it might be exhortation, it might be ruling, it might be faith, it might be teaching, it might be evangelism. Whatever your gift is and however it's It's manifested. The point becomes that you use it in such a way that God is glorified and the kingdom is built. And by the way, the word translated "manifold" means many-colored. It means many-sided. It means variegated. When I was a kid growing up, there was a song entitled "Love Is a Many-Splendored Thing." It means multiple-sided. Here, I think Peter means that God's grace is many-sided, many-colored. Here's the idea. God's grace can meet any need. It can match any color. It can fit together whether the edges are rough or whether the edges are smooth. Here's what he's saying. God loves you and has gifted you in such a way, not that your sides rub against each other, but that they complement one another. I think that that's the point. God gives us the gifts and the strength to use all of these things for his glory and for our good. It is a multifaceted, many-sided grace that makes church possible, that makes living possible, that makes loving possible. And then in verse 11, it says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracle of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He explodes into this exclamation of joy. Here's what he says. If anyone speaks, the emphasis must not be on personal opinion or private belief or personal Personal preference or the subjective philosophies of human wisdom. When he says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracle of God, he is in fact saying that when you open your mouth, open your mouth in such a way that God is glorified and Jesus is glorified. How? In, in what way do we do that? In other words, when you open up your mouth and you say things about God and you say things about Jesus, you say them in a way that is consistent with the character of God and the revelation of Jesus Christ the Lord. What can you honestly say about God? And what can you honestly say about Jesus? The things that are revealed in the Bible. The things that God has said about himself and that Jesus has said about himself. That's the point. The emphasis is as the oracles of God or the utterances of God or the revelation of God. In other words, we open up our mouth and we speak in such a way that we remind each other about his love and his grace and his mercy and his sacrifice, his reality, the reality that he's coming back. Now, think carefully about the outcome. That's what he's saying. So that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God gets the glory. Think about how many problems would be resolved if everyone purposed in their heart that it is God's glory that is preeminent in any given circumstance. What do you want to do? I want to glorify God. What do you want to do? I want Jesus to be glorified. What do you want to do? I want to make sure that what I say and do becomes a reflection of the goodness of God and his grace. That's the point. How do we practically do that? How do we make God's glory our chief aim and our end game? Well, remember that when you talk about the end times, you don't do it with a sandwich board that says turn or burn. It's not... By sending blog messages from your commando bunker in Idaho. You know what I wish I could say? I wish I could say that preachers have never taken advantage of end time events to fill pews or generate church revenue. But can you imagine the headline? Peter preaching on the end times. And here's what Peter says. Stay clear-minded, level-headed, Remain thoughtful and calm, verse 7. Stay disciplined and alert in prayer, seeking God's strength, discerning God's will, in verse 7. Make the active expression of God's love a vital part of your life and ministry, making sure that it stretches far enough to cover the sins of all of the people who hurt you or injure you or or offend you. And then make sure you're found faithful in the stewardship of your God-given gift entrusted gift, investing your time and talent where the eternal consequences Provide the greatest benefit. And in everything that you do, give God the glory. Praise God as the source of salvation and strength and reason for your service. People will go, I could get that anywhere. I know. You can get it anywhere if you'll just open up your Bible. It's not intended to be sensational. Sensational. You know what it was intended to be? Practical. So that when suffering comes and injury takes place, that you would have the tools that are necessary to live with each other and to love each other and to provide for one another. To the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that it is interesting. I love being able to understand the signs of the times. It's great being able to get information about what's going on in our world. And it's difficult to make the honest assessment of what's going on inside of our hearts. Lord, for us to be sober and to be loving and to be hospitable and to exercise our God-given gift in a way that honors you and expands the kingdom and glorifies you and, and expands one person's difficulty into a time of support and relief. Lord, I pray for each and every person here. Lord, I pray that as you manifest your love and as you demonstrate your care, That, Lord, you'll fill our hearts with the understanding that we can live our lives with the knowledge that Jesus could come back at any moment. That he could come back at any moment and deliver us from the pain and the suffering and the persecution and translate us into your eternal kingdom. But in the meantime, we're to occupy and heavenly Father I believe that that occupation includes sobriety hospitality affection generosity in Jesus name Amen let's